You're listening to audio from King's Cross Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information about King's Cross Church, visit us online at kingscrossraleigh.com. So, this morning's text is of <laughs> Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, and I'm reading from CSB. I don't remember what it stands for, but here we go. If then there is any encouragement in Christ... If any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent in one purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross." For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. You're already sitting down. You're good. Didn't need me to say anything. If you, if you have your Bibles with you, we're, we're going to have the text on the screen, but uh, feel free to follow along. It's, it's helpful to, to see that right in front of you. But also, um, if you don't have a Bible of your own, we've got uh, some back here. We'd be happy to get one in your hands uh, before you leave here today. So uh, please grab one. Uh, Go for it, because uh, we love giving them away. Um, I'm not the guy with the budget, so I don't care. It has a price on it. Just take it. Um, So um, if you uh, are on the way there to Philippians chapter 2, we're continuing in the sermon series from last week with um, where Aaron carried us through the end of the previous chapter. This is the third week in Philippians. And just if you're here with us, I wanted to give a little preface. If you're here visiting with us, um, just a a heads up that this is this text is is a family discussion. Uh, That's the nature of it. Um, It doesn't mean you can't listen in and hear what's going on. But it's important to remember that this is Paul speaking to um, he's speaking to a body of believers in the church that's in Philippi. And he's church. He's speaking to a church that is very special in his heart. Uh, one that he loves very dearly. He loves all the churches he's put out there. I mean, some of them, as you guys who maybe, if you're aware, there's, if, you, if you had multiple kids or you had multiple siblings, there's some that are just harder to deal with, but you love them all. The Corinthians are the black sheep. Um, but Philippi has a very special place in Paul's heart. And so he's speaking, as we've introduced, to the very important um, issue of unity in the church because of anything that they're struggling with the one thing he caught word of is unity Um, challenges with 
disagreements. Imagine that. A group of people get together trying to do something all together and there's disunity or disagreements. Doesn't happen. But it did happen to the best of us in Philippi. And so Paul's writing here actually from prison. He's writing from prison and he's sending an encouraging letter back with Epaphroditus. Uh, We're going to look at this letter, this section, chapter 2 verses 1 through 11, And we're going to see that Paul is actually trying to lay out a very important argument for uh, the church of Philippi. Again, this is to believers, so he is appealing to what they know to be true in Christ. And he's encouraging them to press on in unity for Christ. And then he goes to a whole section in which he just starts raging about how great Christ is. Okay? And, and, and here's the deal. If you're visiting, if you're outside the church, you're not, uh, you're, you're just, you're listening in on this conversation of believers here in the chapter. It's a really great Sunday to be a part because I, as I mentioned to my wife this morning, I said, there's just so many important, unique aspects about who Christ is that are just very clear in this passage that we can't avoid. So we have to talk about it. And so as we walk through it, there's three kind of sections that you can keep in mind. The first one is, and and by the way, I'll take a step back, because what he's really trying to get to the Philippian church is he's trying to get it clear that Christian unity, the unity he's seeking for with them, Christian unity flourishes where gospel humility is cultivated. Christian unity, the body being together, flourishes where gospel humility is cultivated. And there's kind of three movements here in the text. There's first the foundation he's laying for uh, gospel humility. The second is a demonstration of what the expression of gospel humility looks like. And then the third one he goes into is the very embodiment of gospel humility in Christ. That's straight up where we're going. It's a great ride. So let's just jump in. Philippians chapter 1, you've already heard the text read. I'm going to go back to verse 1 and verse 2 and look starting there. The foundation of, uh, for gospel humility. What's the foundation? Well, if then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, if any, if any, if any, if any, if any, if any. Paul's got a theme going here, and he's talking to the Philippi church. It's important for us to approach this passage in light of where Paul has already begun to write to Philippi. Paul is here appealing back to the end of the last chapter. He's appealing back to suffering that has been granted to them in verse 29. He's appealing back to uh, the struggle they're engaging in along with Paul in verse 30. And now he's saying here at this point where Aaron did a fantastic job talking about and pointing out last week, Paul is writing from prison, encouraging the Philippians to stand firm in one spirit, contending together for the face of the gospel in face of opposition. Now, it's not clear what that opposition is. Not clear. Doesn't really articulate it. But we do know from Acts 16 that when Paul went to Philippi, he, uh, when he first came there, one of the first things he did was he actually um, cast out a demon from a local slave girl. And by the way, her masters were making money and profit off of this demon possession. She was their little circus act. And so they weren't happy about that, right? 
They were not happy that Paul had interrupted their prophet, so they took it personally and they complained to local authorities. And in Acts 16, 20 through 21, they accused Paul and Silas of, quote, seriously disturbing our city and, quote, promoting customs that are not legal for us as Romans to adopt or practice. The authorities then proceeded to have them beaten and thrown into prison. So we can only assume that even though Paul's not there, that kind of persecution is probably still going on. Something is happening, there's contention, there is opposition, and the Philippian church is facing it. Based on the letter, we see opposition for the Philippian church, but listen, if you are standing for Christ, there's opposition everywhere. Be aware of that. That's not just for them. I mean, we stand here in the U.S. with a little bit of a benefit and a measure of religious freedom, uh, but when you follow Christ, you're going to come to a point where you're in conflict with the world's values and the world's systems. Now, listen, guys, uh, I'm not saying encouraging you to go around looking for uh, victim mentality, right? Don't have victim mentality that you're going to look for um, persecution under every new law. But the reality is that as you stand in the gospel, Jesus told his disciples, if the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, I've chosen you out of it. The world hates you. When you suffer, when you struggle against opposition, there's discouragement. It can feel isolating. You can feel unloved. But brothers and sisters, you know we as Christians don't face that opposition alone. We don't face it alone. Our comfort through pain, through sorrow, through grief, through loss, everything that we face in this sin-broken world, our comfort comes from Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ is our comfort. The Spirit of God, who Jesus called the Comforter, lives in us. So if you look again at the verse, what is Paul doing? If then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, Paul is not suggesting this might not be true for the Philippines. The if here is presuming that it's true. He's laying the groundwork by saying in the opening of this letter, Paul expresses confidence that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. God's at work in you. So I know that if God's at work in you, I've seen the life through you, that I can trust that God is in you. And he knows that we worship a God who offers comfort and mercy. Come to me. All who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. That's the words of Jesus. Take up my yoke and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He provides us comfort. Believers, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation and comfort in God's love, if there is any fellowship with the Spirit alive in you, if you have experienced any of the kindness, affection, and mercy of our Lord, then God is at work in you and has united you into the family of God. God is uniting his people through his Son, through Christ. You are sons and daughters of the King, and all Christians are brothers and sisters in the kingdom. This is what Paul's reminding the Philippians of. You're in the kingdom. God is in you. He is showing you mercy, kindness, and love, and comfort. By the way, that means you're not getting rid of me. I mean, you might be able to avoid me in this lifetime, but uh, 
like the old hymn says, when the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. All believers will be at the family reunion in eternity. What Paul's appealing to is, let's try to live in unity while we're here. If God has united us all in spirit, what is Paul saying we should do now? You're united by the blood of Christ. There is comfort that is shared. There is love and mercy from God. How should we now live? Well, we unite together on the mission of Christ. We unite together on the mission of Christ. Look at verse 2. Make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Make my joy complete. He's not suggesting that Paul, that his joy is lacking. Okay, his joy is in Christ. He says it later. He has joy in Christ. He said it earlier. He's in prison. I have joy and I rejoice in what God is doing. So Paul has joy, but he's saying this because Paul is kind of like a spiritual father to the Philippian church. Okay, he's birthed this church, if you will. And so as a really loving, proud dad, he's like, make me proud. He's like, guys, make my joy complete. At the end of this chapter, he makes a reference to boasting in the Philippians as they hold firm to the word of life. He's saying, make my joy complete. Make me a happy spiritual dad. How? As a loving father, he's encouraging the Philippians to live united in purpose, as just as God has united them in his spirit. What Paul's talking about is a shift in mindset for them. The reality is that God's united them in his body, but now you need to start thinking that way. You need to shift your mindset because there's not four different changes listed here. That's not four different things. Paul is saying, complete my joy by thinking the same way that I do, having the same love that, that I do. As you are united in spirit, be intent on one purpose. This is all one thing he wants them to do. And what is that purpose? What is the purpose? We read it in the last chapter. He's not hiding it. He's not burying the lead. He says in verse 27, just one thing, as citizens in heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I will hear about you that you are standing firm in one spirit and one accord. How? Contending together for the gospel, for the faith of the gospel. So what's his purpose? What's the one mindset? What is the mind that the Philippians should be focused on? to contend together for the gospel. What, we do these, we have done these catechisms for our kids, okay, you're familiar with that. You ask questions and then there's answers. It's helpful to think through some hard theological things. One of the very first ones in the catechism, at least for the kids version, there's probably a more complex one, I just memorized the kids one, uh, is what is our only hope in life and death? And the answer is that we are not our own, but belong to God. We live in a broken world, don't we? We live in a broken world, but that's not how it started. God created this world and everything in it, and he did so perfectly. And in the end, we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of God to give an account. For it's written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me and every tongue will give praise to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. For none of us lives for himself, and no one dies for himself. If we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. My encouragement is this. If God has, in his love and kindness, 
saved us through his son, what else do we live for and prioritize? That Paul could be in prison and he could say, what's happening to me is advancing the gospel so I can rejoice. That I can be excited that I'm a prisoner in chains, but the gospel goes forth. How can we being dead in our sins be made alive? God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, the gospel. How did God demonstrate his love for us? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us, the gospel. This gives us life, brothers and sisters. And Paul is encouraging the Philippians, this gives you life, this is your purpose. Yeah, there's a lot of other things you gotta do. I, you gotta eat, you gotta drink, you gotta sleep, but actually you can do all those things to the glory of God. I enjoy a big fat steak and praise God the whole time. But it's a mindset shift for the Philippians to live in walk worthy of the gospel. He's already said it. Now unite yourself in purpose. That is the gospel, the one love, the one purpose the church unites around. We only stray from unity when we stray from the gospel. We contend together for the gospel when we make the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ our priority. We choose unity when we make everything else secondary. Remember, we talked about this from the beginning. God is at work doing something. He's uniting the family of God in Christ. But we also are called to obedience, to unite around the mission. Our foundation for gospel humility is that the same Spirit of God lives in each one of us. That the same Christ who died for you has died for each and every believer. We have all been adopted into the same family. And more than that, we're on the same mission. In the same battle. That's the foundation that Paul is laying. Soldiers don't see much mission success, by the way, if they're too busy in the trenches worried about getting promoted, thinking about uh, that they're too good for any particular role or maybe shooting each other in the trenches. They don't get a lot done, do they? We're all fellow soldiers, side by side for the advance of the gospel. Now let's unite around that common purpose. Paul points out that God has called them all together and united them, so now unite together for this purpose. That can sound kind of easy on paper, but it's kind of like moving in with new roommates, getting married or adding children to the mix. You're kind of like really excited about it before it starts or starting a new job. Like it's like you got all your hopes and dreams and it's going to be greener on the other side. But I got to tell you, everyone tells you there's are challenges in all those things. But there is no limit to the kind of craziness and issues that sinners can create together. Anybody had a, a roommate experience that turned out to a nightmare? My wife thinks that. She's like, I married one. So what is Paul's guidance? What is he doing with the Philippians? What is he encouraging them? How do we live together united around the same purpose when we are all out of our minds? Can I admit that? We're all out of our minds a little bit, right? We're, a little, we're all a little bent, a little broken. The answer is gospel humility. He's laid the foundation, and now he wants to show us what it looks like. Now, what the translation for this really is, is humble-mindedness. Having a humble mind, thinking this way in humbleness. So what's it look like? Verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourself. 
Everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. So Paul just laid it out in two verses. We're done. Close the book. What is he saying? He says, don't pursue first, don't pursue vainglory. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. Listen, guys, ambition is good. If anybody has known me for long enough, if anything, you got to like tie me down. I think there's all kinds of great ideas in the world and, and we go after them. I love ambition. Be ambitious. That's not what Paul's talking about. We should be striving for the best in life. And God created the entire universe. You can't be more ambitious than the God who created us. And he has made us in his image. We honor and worship God through our work, our art, our creativity, our achievements. Work, build, compete, succeed, all to the glory of God. Be ambitious for the kingdom. Can I I give you an actual really uh, close example? One of our sister churches, Redemption City, planted up in Baltimore. When they came in there and started... um, well, first off, recently they began, they purchased their own building. And in their building, they decided on Sundays they have services, they begin to run and host, uh, they run a co working space in the coffee shop downtown for the community. Okay? When they first got to Baltimore, they told them that there's no, that, that a big church is 50 people. Last Sunday, they broke 200. Just last Sunday, 203, I think was the number. Gospel ambition is good. I would love for every member of King's Cross to lead with that kind of gospel ambition. But that's not what Paul's talking about. Selfish ambition is all about you and not caring what effect or impact it has on others. It's about self. In chapter 1, if you recall, he actually, Paul actually referred to some people who were preaching Christ from selfish ambition. thinking they will cause him trouble and imprisonment. Paul, unintentionally, he's not trying to do this. He hasn't created a social media following of his own. People just know he's coming. They listen to his preaching. He's well-liked, well-loved. He's a gospel leader who's planting churches. He goes into prison, and there's some people who are taking advantage of the opportunity. Oh, I can preach that same gospel. I'll go out there and do that, and maybe I can draw a crowd thinking they could afflict, harm, promote themselves. Selfish ambition, not even caring about what's going on with Paul. This is a great opportunity for me. And then secondly, it says conceit, which is defined and uh, interpreted vain glory, empty or misplaced pride. It's you being proud of yourself when it really doesn't make sense or isn't warranted. This was a favorite, actually, a favorite word of the Greek philosopher Epicurus. And he would use it to to describe the term delusion. This conceit. You're delusional. But you're deluded in how awesome you are. See, believers, selfish ambition and conceit, these should never be our motivations. They should never be our motivations. We don't seek power, promotion, approval at the expense of others. We don't look for opportunities when others fall to promote ourselves. Instead, the second thing Paul turns to is that we should have a servant mindset. 
And by the way, when he says this, but in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves, that word humility is not popular in Greek culture. It's actually the way they describe the mind of a slave, where everybody else is better than that one. That's what Paul is pulling out. That, this was being presented as a Christian ideal. To count others is more significant than you. It's the same word Paul uses to describe Christ later in this same letter when he says that Christ is superior to everything else he's experienced. Here he's saying, guys, your mindset is that everyone else is more important than you. Live that way. In Romans chapter 12, he says it this way. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. What, a church, what would the church be like? What would we live like if it was a competition to who could honor the other one more? That's what Paul is appealing to. That's the heart mindset. How do we lower ourselves to raise up, build up, and encourage others? The opposite of selfish ambition. Looking out for me. How do I look out for you? And then he closes the loop here with that very exact phrase in verse 4. Everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. Seek the best for others. Not to your own benefit alone, seeking spiritual, financial benefit, approval of your peers. All of those things are not on our, our radars. I mean, they can be. But let's be aware. Let's have a mindset that seeks the best of others first. By the way, the phrase here is don't, don't not look out for yourself, please. Steward, be wise, you know, improve yourself. I said be ambitious. But Paul's talking of a posture that also looks out for the best of others. When we seek the interests of others, we can celebrate with them the way God blesses us all. Do you find yourself at times struggling to celebrate when God does something good in someone else's life? Do you find yourself at work hating when someone else gets the promotion you thought you should get? I'm just listing stuff I've struggled with. I don't know if you guys are on board with that. When somebody gets something or does something or the Lord moves in such a way, God, we got to trust that God has the right thing in mind for us. And we got to trust and celebrate with our brothers and sisters as he does amazing things for them. Humility looks different than you might think. C.S. Lewis, uh, author, actually said this. This is a quote from him. He says, do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he'll be what most people call humble nowadays. He's not going to be some sort of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he is a nobody. Probably all you'll think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it'll be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He'll not be thinking about humility. He'll not be thinking about himself at all. If anyone would like to acquire humility, I can, I think, tell him the first step. The first step is to realize that one is proud. And a biggest step, too. At least nothing, whatever, can be done before it. If you think you're not conceited, it means you're very conceited indeed. 
What's the opposite of humility? It's pride. Pride is the, the obstacle for unity and following Jesus. Satan fell because of pride. In Genesis, in the garden, Adam and Eve bought the lie that God was holding back something they deserved. They were thinking of themselves. You can find pride and conceit at the root of all sorts of sin. You steal from others to look out for yourself. You lie to protect yourself. James said that you quarrel and fight because there's something you want that you don't have. I've used this as a simple example, but this is usually real day-to-day life. Like I come home from a hard day of work and the kids aren't just acting the way they should or Heather's not leaving me alone because she wants to talk and I just want to chill and go out in my chair or maybe read a book or do something that doesn't involve people. And I get a little uh, snappy. Okay, sometimes. Why do I do that? Because there's something I thought I wanted that I'm not having. And that can blow up on all kinds of ways. It's self-centeredness. And more than that, God hates pride. James and Peter quote the proverb, God resists the proud and he gives grace to the humble. We see Jesus with that very posture with the Pharisees in the Gospels. He actually, when they're proud, they're proud, they love getting honor from people and having the best seats at the parties. That's what it says about the Pharisees. And he gives them the worst time. God can't work with a proud heart. But he didn't leave us just to sit and wonder what that really looks like. Paul lays it out, but then he then goes a step further because we can see God actually embody gospel humility in Christ. Look at verse 5. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. There's three things happening, and I'm going to read through to the end of 11 after this, but I need to walk through this with you guys, and I'm going to probably stop at a few lines, and I'll tell you why. Because there's three, there's two very specific movements. First is the servant mind of, of Christ being displayed. Then there's the exaltation of Christ. I just read the passage on the servant mind of Christ on display. And I want to read through this a little bit line by line, partly because it's a very hotly debated section of Scripture. I'll be straight up honest with you. But I don't think it has to be that hard. It's debated because of the grammar a little bit and some weird stuff, but it's really important to talk about it. I'm not doing it just because I like it and it's fun. The first verse, the first line says, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. There's already a debate there. Okay? It's a debate between, is this a theological statement of your position in Christ? You know, hey, adopt this mind because you have that mind because you're in Christ. Or is Christ set as an example, like have this mind that is in Christ? See, look at his, have one like that. See the difference? Very theological people like to like argue about fine-tuned stuff, I'm just saying. And, and here, Paul doesn't make it any easier because Paul leaves the verb out. He leaves the verb out. You know why? Because I don't think it matters. Paul is saying, here's my answer to that question, yes. Yes, 
God has said that he has empowered and dwelt you with the Spirit. Because you were in Christ, you now can walk in faithful obedience. Yes. But also, hey, Paul's pointing the Philippians to Christ and says, look at him. Be like that. Both of them. Yes, God has enabled you as a believer to walk in obedience and be a humble servant. Look at Christ. That's how you do it. Obey because God is at work in you. Paul is clearly pointing toward Christ as an example, but he's also pointing towards the theological truth of what God has done for us in Christ. This particular passage is one of the closest things in the Philippians letter to some kind of a systematic theology. But you know what? It's not because Paul's talking to friends and he wants to encourage them. It's not detailed doctrinally. It's relational. It's relatable conversation. I said on the first service, it's street theology is how it's described. He's just, he's just kicking it with friends. Is that a word that cool kids say anymore? I don't know. I'm not cool anymore. Paul is writing to a community of believers he holds in his heart. They're struggling to maintain unity, and Paul is pointing them to Christ. Their lives aren't aligning with the gospel. They're not walking worthy of the gospel that they say they believe. Brothers and sisters, listen. When you, have, when you are encouraging one another, when you are in communion with one another, and you see a place where we're out of line, point them to Christ. For yourself, when you're in need, when you're needing comfort, encouragement, when you just don't know the next step to take, look to Christ. Paul's setting an example for us. Look to Christ. Look at the first portion here. We look at the second. Look, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ, who, existing in the form of God, stop. What does that mean? Existing in the form of God. Well, by the way, it's not just he happens to be a kind of a God. This actual term morph is used here. It's the essence and nature of God, the very person of God. Jesus referred to himself on multiple occasions as the son of man, and I am. And when the Philippian, not when the Philippians, when the Pharisees wanted to put him to death, they recognized those clear references, and they said they wanted to kill Jesus because as a man, he claimed to be God. Paul is saying, Jesus, in his essence and nature, is God. And don't miss the parallel between this passage and what Paul did earlier. Because what he says is, as God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Or, as God, Jesus who had true glory, not vainglory. Remember I said conceit, vainglory? You're, you're proud of yourself for who knows what reason? Nothing to celebrate? I'm sorry, I'm not trying to be totally downputting, but yeah, I mean vainglory, conceit. Christ had real glory. He had true glory, and in his glory as God, Christ laid it down. With glory and power and honor he truly deserved, he chose not to exploit it. Paul said, don't do anything from selfish ambition or conceit. Look at Christ. He had all the glory, and he willingly set it aside for us. What did, what did he do instead? Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. He emptied his own right to glory as Godhood, and he took on the form of a servant. John 1, 
says that Jesus in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and he was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. Christ was with God from the beginning. Christ was God, and he willingly took on the form of a servant. Again, the same word from above, that he was in the form of God, the essence, the nature, and now he took the essence and nature and person of man. He humbled himself. He took on humanity. He took on the role of a servant. And look at the, again at the parallel that's being drawn here by Paul. Paul says, the Philippians, he tells them, in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. Well, Christ here willingly emptied himself to be a servant. To be a servant in the mindset of a servant literally translated as a slave who looked to everyone else's needs above his own. Jesus washed feet when he was on earth. In John 13, he told his disciples, you call me teacher and Lord, and you're speaking rightly, since that is what I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also all should do just as I've done for you. Truly, I tell you, a servant is not greater than his master, and a messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. I'm not literally saying we need to set up a foot-washing line, although I need it. No, I clean. But Jesus is setting an example of servanthood. Who wants to wash people's feet? That was the lowest cert. You guys ever got a new job, and you get all the really bad, you got to sweep the floors, you got to mop, you got all the cleanup, you got all that... That's, it's a servant's job to wash feet, and it's, it's the new guy's job to wash feet. And Jesus did it. They got some nasty feet walking through the streets of Jerusalem. Who knows they're walking in? Animals. Jesus said, be like that. But he didn't stop there. Because in the next part of the passage, it says, when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Jesus says, I'm going to lower myself. I'm going to be a servant. I'm going to serve. I'm going to demonstrate that through the way I wash your feet. And I love you. But more than that, I'm going to obey all the way to the cross. Once a man, Jesus continues to humble himself in obedience to the point that he gave his life on our behalf. He knew it was the only way. Luke 22:42. Jesus is in the garden. He is sweating blood. He is so stressed. He knows what's coming. And he prays to the Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He was obedient even to death. And in this example that Paul's setting for us with Jesus, he is in fact making an argument from greater to lesser. Maybe you've heard of this. The greater is Jesus Christ, who is God. Any of us with our vainglory God? Some of us act like it. In my own domain at home, I, I rule and reign. Okay, Heather does, but Jesus Christ is God. And he lowered himself to serve us to the point of death. Brothers and sisters, could I ask then, what is it that we 
have that we can't set aside to serve others. If the king of the universe, if Christ has laid down everything on our behalf so that we can live, now how much more then should we lay down our life for a friend? But we move forward to the next verse in Scripture, verse 9. Because Christ didn't stay there. For this reason, God has highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, I want to say that this, what's called the Christ hymn, verses 5 through the end, is, is packed full of a lot of stuff. So much so that next week when you come back, it's going to be part of that sermon. So we're not going to unpack everything here. But we do want to point out a few things. One of the temptations when navigating this conversation is to start hedging with exceptions. Okay? We can say, well, uh, yes, I need to lay down my life for the sake of the others in the but you know what, it's been a really rough day today, or uh, maybe I've got real to watch out for myself because, um, because I don't want people to just trample all over me, and I don't want to be that guy that's just a, a doormat for, for the brothers and sisters in the church. Man, they can't take advantage of me. I'm going to look out for me. But Paul doesn't give us any of that. Paul doesn't give us any of that. He doesn't say, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit unless it's your time to shine. He doesn't say, in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves unless you need to do you. He doesn't say, everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others unless you need to speak your truth. He doesn't say any of that. In fact, in some ways, there may, it may be strange to look at this exaltation passage, but I think it's very poignant for it to be here. Because within the context of the church body, there are specific times of divisiveness and unrepentant sin when the local church does remove fellowship. But we walk that as a body. See, we don't pick and choose those who we serve. Jesus Christ is not just some lowly servant. He is the Lord and King over all, and he lowered himself to draw near to the lost and broken. And now we see in this passage that Christ is exalted to his rightful place. He is our advocate, and we don't have to defend or guard against being too servant-minded. Hebrews chapter 4, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. Look, be wise. Steward your time and your resources as you serve others, but be ambitious for the glory of God. And you know our Lord, King Jesus, rules and reigns. Just as we see in this passage that God has exalted Christ. 
God has placed him on the throne. In his timing, he'll exalt you. You don't need to worry about that part. It may not be when or in the way that you think is best, but trust and know as you humble yourselves before the Lord, he will exalt you. If you're in Christ, he also told us that in Ephesians chapter 2. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ. Even though we were dead in trespasses, you were saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. If the purpose of God exalting you is to put on display his kindness, he will do it. Because we have a kind, kind God who is near to the low and broken. This might be a really good opportunity as well to encourage you. We have a book um, that's totally free. Grab it. It's gentle and lowly. It's about this Christ that we serve. That he has lowered himself to his people. You don't see, I said this is unique to our gospel. You don't see this in other places. You got to get to God. He came to us. Not in Christianity. He came to us. And so we serve this God. We can serve him in obedience because we know he's united us as a family. So we can lay down our life for one another. Close with me in prayer. Father, I just pray that you be with us as we continue in worship tonight, today. Lord, give us grace. Uh, Expose where sin is in our life. Expose to us, um, in all honesty, honesty, where we need to grow. But Lord, Above all else, fill us with your spirit. Give us wisdom as we seek you. And Lord, give us a strength and the confidence and the courage to live boldly with a servant mind. Let's outdo one another in honor. God, I pray you give us the strength to do that. Thank you for your son. Thank you for Christ. That we can see that not only... Uh, Does he rule and reign as king, but he emptied himself to become a servant for us. Remind us, refresh us daily with that truth. That we can wake up every day free, knowing he advocates for us. That he is our great high priest, free to love others the way that you loved us in Christ. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the time you've given us even here today. And I ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.